But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. It's the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and I'm Wahid Rahman. Today's topic, the Apollo Space Program. And my today's guest is New York Times bestselling author Charles Fishman, who wrote the book One Giant Leap, the impossible mission that flew us to the moon. In May 1961, President John Kennedy said, let's put people on the moon and bring them home safely, and let's do it by the end of this decade. So here was a program that was, in fact, the hardest thing human beings had ever undertaken outside of war. Going to the moon turned out to be literally the hardest task ever undertaken by people. Where did the spaceship and the computer that flew the spaceship come from? None of that technology existed in 1961. And then in 1969, two guys named Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were bouncing around on the moon. How did we do that? And the background to the Apollo missions were also interesting, which was basically the space race with the Soviet Union at that time. The Russians launched the first satellite of any kind into space, Sputnik. That caused a worldwide hubbub because of the incredible technical achievement it represented in the late 1950s. So the Soviet Union was doing this incredible job of space achievement. And they explicitly said, this proved that communism and authoritarianism is the best system of government in the world. Look at our brilliant technical achievements. We have caught up to the world leader in science and technology. John Kennedy decided that we could not simply let the Soviet Union pretend that they were ahead of everybody else in the world in technology. And so he accelerated the American space program. He said to his own science and space and technology advisors, what can we do to show the world that the Soviet Union isn't ahead? And there was literally only one answer. We can go to the moon. We can say we're going to go to the moon and then do it. There is a myriad of lessons we can learn from the Apollo space missions because it was literally one of the most successful government-funded technology programs in the history of humanity. Apollo was, of course, first and foremost, a government program, a government effort. The U.S. federal government decided going to the moon was a priority and announced that that was a national goal within eight years and then bent all kinds of resources and all kinds of political support in pursuit of that goal. But in fact, not just in the United States, but around the world, developed economies and emerging markets, government programs often go off the rails. They often run 10 or 20 or 50% over budget. They often, years late, there were 410,000 people working on Apollo across the U.S. and around the world. That's literally an incredible army of people almost half a million people. And those 410,000 people worked at 20,000 companies. The work of all those 20,000 companies had to be coordinated. NASA was in project management mode. They weren't doing the work, they were 
making sure the work was getting done on time and with the correct kinds of technical solutions that match the requirements. NASA was able to open up the entire country to finding those solutions. And Apollo itself, of course, had incredible effect on hardware and software that we do in the current world today. In fact, there is more than 1800 technologies all around us that were spin-off technologies as a result of the Apollo space missions. Apollo literally invented the phrase software engineering. The software that flew the spaceships to the moon, that was in the computers, flying this, doing the math to the navigation to fly to the moon, that software was written in MIT. And the engineers at MIT who were writing it thought of it as an engineering discipline. And there's a huge evolution since the time of Apollo in the space economy and the fact that costs have decreased precipitously since the Apollo space missions. Henceforth, this gives a lot more opportunities. The space economy will eventually become more like the internet economy, which is more democratized. And so what I would say is dozens of emerging market countries, including Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, the Arab nations as a coalition, Russia, Brazil, Bolivia, all kinds of countries have satellites in orbit because making a satellite has become something that's accessible to all kinds of organizations and all kinds of governments because it's inexpensive, it's reliable. That and much more coming right up on this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Innovation Civilization podcast. Charles, great to have you here today with us. Thanks so much for inviting me. Brilliant. So, Charles, let's just get right into it. Can you tell us a bit of background on why you chose to write a book on the topic of the Apollo missions? I mean, you wrote quite a few things, right, about the Walmart effect and how it had an effect on the retail space. You wrote a book on water. So I was just interested in knowing why did you want to write a book on Apollo? So I've written books about Walmart and water, and even those two topics don't really seem to be related. I wrote about how Walmart became the biggest and most successful, not just retailer in the history of the United States and the history of the world, but company in the history of the world. And I wrote about our complicated relationship to water and the water problems that we're going to be facing in a book called The Big Thirst, and how people who tackle their water problems and fix them get that work done. Then I turned around and wrote a book about going to the moon in the 1960s. So here's the connection. In fact, the book about Walmart and the book about water and the book about the race to the moon in the 1960s share one really important core question, which is how did they do that? How do they do the engineering part? And just as important, how do they do the people part, the politics part? How do they get people on board? That's exactly what I wrote about with Going to the Moon. I wrote about how the engineers and scientists and factory workers did the work necessary to get us to the moon. Almost every book that's ever been written about the race to the moon in the 1960s, about the effort to put people on the moon between 1961 and 1969, tells the story from the perspective of the astronauts. They're the public face of the program. 
in those beautiful blazing white spacesuits riding this incredible rocket, the likes of which had never been seen by anyone on Earth before. They're kind of the heroes and the adventurers. Why wouldn't you tell the story from their perspective? But in fact, what was interesting to me was how did we do it? Where did the spacesuits come from? Where did the rocket come from? Where did the spaceship and the computer that flew the spaceship come from? None of that technology existed in 1961. And then in 1969, two guys named Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were bouncing around on the moon. How did we do that? Neil Armstrong Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, the astronauts for that first moon landing for Apollo 11, they would be the first to tell you that they didn't do the work to get them there. And so that's what was interesting to me. And that's what I really thought I had to add. There is literally a library of books about how we got to the moon, but that library of books is really all about the famous people, all about Werner von Braun, the, the brilliant rocket genius, and Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin and those sort of headline newspaper picture people. I wanted to write about the much less well-known or all but anonymous people who actually invented the technology and then manufactured it. Those people turned out to be as bold, as courageous, as determined as the astronauts themselves. And their work also had to be perfect, just like that of the astronauts, in order for the mission to succeed. So that's the book I wrote. And I think most of us are not military pilots flying on and off the decks of aircraft carriers like many of the astronauts were. Most of us are ordinary people. And you know what? It was ordinary people who got us to the moon. And that's the story I hope I told in writing One Giant Leap. There's also usually a case where people actually poo-poo on big government publicly funded projects and the reason is because they're mostly a failure however that wasn't the case for apollo it was basically on time on budget and was a success so i really wanted to understand from charles on what he thought were the key factors that made apollo successful unlike any other big project ever done before I think this is a really, really important question because Apollo was, of course, and in some ways, first and foremost, a government program, a government effort. The U.S. federal government decided going to the moon was a priority and announced that that was a national goal within eight years and then bent all kinds of resources and all kinds of political support in pursuit of that goal. But in fact, not just in the United States, but around the world, in, in developed economies and emerging markets, government programs often go off the rails. They often run 10 or 20 or 50% over budget, if not 100% over budget. They often years late and they often don't succeed in doing what they were supposed to do. So here was a program that was, in fact, the hardest thing human beings had ever undertaken outside of war. Going to the moon turned out to be literally the hardest task ever undertaken by people. And we did it. It was a 100% success. We landed on the moon. We ended up sending not just astronauts, but an electric car to the moon. It was on time. We did it by 1969 and then did it five more times after that. And it was on budget. It actually came in within the range of money, $24 billion, what it cost at the time, that was predicted back in 1961 that the presidential administration of John Kennedy told Congress it would cost. How do you manage a project this big? Not just governments, but all kinds of organizations and companies take on big projects and want them to succeed. Here's how complicated Apollo was. There were 
410,000 people working on Apollo across the U.S. and around the world. That's more people than were fighting for the United States in the Vietnam War during many years of the war. That's literally an incredible army of people, almost half a million people. And those 410,000 people worked at 20,000 companies. So the work of 20,000 companies making batteries, electrical connectors, spaceships, spacesuits, computers, the racks that the computers were mounted in, rocket engines, fuel tanks for the rocket engines, the work of all those 20,000 companies had to be coordinated coordinated and it all had to work perfectly, right? The valves for the fuel tanks had to fit exactly the valves they were connecting to on the engines, even if those two things were made by different companies. The electrical connectors for the spaceship had to match the electrical connectors for the computer, even if, and they were, those things were manufactured by different companies. And we all know how off the rails things like that can go. Here's the key. There were several keys. First of all, there were 410,000 people at companies working on Apollo. NASA itself had 35,000 people managing the Apollo project, but that's what they did. NASA didn't do the work. NASA supervised the work. NASA looked over the shoulders of its companies, but it let them solve the problems that needed to be solved. There were 10 thousand engineering and technical and manufacturing challenges that had to be solved in order for astronauts to get to the moon, in order for NASA to land on the moon. What NASA did was say, here are the things the spacesuits have to do. Here are the things the lunar module that lands on the moon has to do. Here are the things the rocket engines for the spaceship has to do. You figure out how to do it and then tell us what you're going to do. And we will look over your shoulder every two weeks or four weeks or six weeks, review your progress and review the technical details of your solution. So there was an iterative process. The key there, though, is two things. NASA was in project management mode. They weren't doing the work. They were making sure the work was getting done on time and with the correct kinds of technical solutions that match the requirements. Just as important, NASA was able to open up the entire country to finding those solutions. They weren't limited to people who worked for NASA and what their brains and creativity and innovation and imagination could come up with. Anybody at any company who could come up with a solution could come to NASA and say, we've solved the problem how to feed the astronauts how to go to the bathroom in space, how to drive around in space. And that worked very well. In fact, the spacesuit, as an example, incredible innovation to give Apollo astronauts spacesuits that they could wear on the surface of the moon safely, but also have the flexibility and nimbleness to move around and do their work. Spacesuits are actually little tiny spacecraft built just for one person. They're sealed against the dangers of space. The company that made those spacesuits was not one of the big U.S. defense contractors. The company that made them was called Playtex. Playtex was a legendary U.S. company that made women's underwear, brassiers and girdles in the 1960s. Uh, a very well-known company, very experienced at manufacturing flexible fabrics that had to be form-fitting. That kind of cheeky observation is exactly what they said to NASA. Let us try this. We know how to make fabrics that are form-fitting and also move with the person who's wearing them. And in the end, NASA chose Playtex to make the spacesuits. And for the next 50 years, not only for Apollo, but for the space shuttle and the International Space Station, Playtex and then the division of Playtex that made these spacesuits was the spacesuit manufacturer for NASA. So NASA was able to open wide the opportunity 
for solutions to these never before solved problems and then manage that work in a kind of supervisory hands-on way without doing the work itself. And so this kind of project management technique that NASA perfected is there, literally there are books written just about how NASA managed the effort to get to the moon and the lessons you can learn from that kind of sprawling project management. So I think when you say what made Apollo successful, understanding what the goal was and the time frame, and then managing to combine both a wide opportunity for innovation and problem solving with close supervision by NASA, the organization that was responsible. I'll say one final thing. It can really be underestimated how important the clarity and directness of the goal was. In May 1961, President John Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. He literally said two things. Let's put people on the moon and bring them home safely, and let's do it by the end of this decade, which was interpreted at that time to be either 1969 or 1970, depending on whether NASA needed the extra time. And so anybody working on that project, starting from June 1st, 1961, straight through the last moon landing in the early 1970s, they could ask themselves the question, is what we're doing today land people safely on the moon? And is it helping us do it by the deadline of December 1969? If it's not, then we're not paying attention to the right things. When you talk to the people who did the work to get to the moon, I probably interviewed a hundred of those folks who are still alive. They all mentioned that they were acutely aware of both exactly what the mission was and when it had to be done by. It's interesting that 50 years later, they remember those two things and they helped motivate them and keep them clear on what needed to be done. And so clarity of goal, clarity of deadline, and this sort of organization which combined the opportunity for maximum creativity and problem solving, while at the same time, NASA put in place a really good oversight and supervisory structure. So NASA was both the boss of the effort and the partner in the effort, but didn't put itself in a position of being the one place that every solution had to be found. The Apollo missions were a mission statement to the world, basically, that democracy works with big project management structures, really. And this was very much in contrast to the Soviets, which was like a command economy with a hierarchy, which is very centralized. Apollo, as Charles mentioned, has basically both the centralized element and the decentralized element coupled together as well. So that was very interesting to find how it actually worked. If you go back to May 1961, in fact, the only reason that the United States of America decided to go to the moon was this Cold War rivalry with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was having incredible success in space. Going back to 1957, the Russians launched the first satellite of any kind into space, Sputnik. That caused a worldwide hubbub because of the incredible technical achievement it represented in the late 1950s. The Soviet Union went on to launch the first creatures of any kind into space, the dog Laika, to launch the first human being into space, Yuri Gagarin, in April 1961. They launched the first two-person crew into space. They launched the first space probe that reached and photographed the moon. They performed the first spacewalk in which they actually were in orbit around Earth 
opened the hatch and sent an astronaut out into space on a tether. So the Soviet Union was doing this incredible job of space achievement. And they explicitly said, this proved that communism and authoritarianism is the best system of government in the world. Look at our brilliant technical achievements. We have caught up to the world leader in science and technology, the Americans. And now every single month, we do something in space that they haven't done, that they aren't doing. Therefore, communism and authoritarianism must be the right path. And at this time, the world was literally divided between countries that supported the United States, countries that supported and aligned with the Soviet Union, and then a small group of what were called unaligned or non-aligned countries that were actually trying to decide whether they should sort of throw themselves under the umbrella of one system or another. And this wasn't like a sports rivalry. This wasn't like two European soccer teams facing off. This was life and death. This was how people lived. This was what kind of government they lived under, what kind of freedom they had every day, what kind of economic system they had every day, what kind of economic opportunity they had every day. So this was serious business. Wars were being fought in what we think of as this quote-unquote Cold War rivalry. And so John Kennedy decided that we could not simply let the Soviet Union pretend that they were ahead of everybody else in the world in technology and use their space achievements to underscore that point. And so he accelerated the American space program. He emphasized it. He said to his own science and space and technology advisors, what can we do to show the world that the Soviet Union isn't ahead. And the answer, there was literally only one answer. We can go to the moon. We can say we're going to go to the moon and then do it. And in fact, it was a national rivalry to start between the, the, the Americans and the Soviets, but it was a rivalry between systems. Can democracy and capitalism produce the kind of innovation and focus and determination across an entire decade to achieve something that was literally impossible? when we started. Will that come out better or worse than the version being done at the Soviet Union? And in fact, it's very clear on the American side that Americans were determined not to let the first flag that was planted on the moon by human beings be the Soviet Union's hammer and sickle. Whatever you think about America's role in the world and the Russian and Soviet role in the world, that hammer and sickle stood for oppression and domination, the dominate the, the superiority of the state over the individual, the communist economic system, not the capitalist economic system. And so for all the flaws of America's performance in the world, world, the American flag then certainly stood for a sense of freedom and individual opportunity was the opposite of what the Soviet flag stood for. So this rivalry was taken very seriously and, and rivalry is too pale a word for it. It was really a battle for hearts and minds and futures around the world. And in fact, it wasn't pure symbolism. Americans really felt like capitalism and democracy could produce a better solution to this complicated problem of going to the moon. And in the end, it did. The Americans not only beat the Soviets to the moon, the Soviets never even tried to land on the moon. Having been bested by the Americans, the Soviets didn't even send astronauts to orbit the moon. They just gave up. And many years later, 
when the Soviet Union fell and scholars gained access to the archives, it was very clear the Soviet solutions to technical problems were not nearly as ingenious or resilient or robust as the American solutions. The Soviets were willing to put their astronauts and their sort of national honor at stake to just keep going with brute force. And the Americans were finding much more valuable technical solutions. And in fact, the American space program turned out to have its biggest impact back on Earth because of those technical solutions. So I think very much when the program began, it was that rivalry and it was seen as that rivalry. What about on software? So I know that the way software was done basically in Apollo was pretty archaic with punch cards and stuff, but I think it had some effect on software engineering and the tradition of it. So can you speak a bit more about that? That's a great question and people don't pay enough attention to this. The phrase software engineering is part of how we think about the world, right? The, the computer itself is fine, but computers don't do anything. They need someone to write programs, to write code that helps, that, that tells the computer what to do to solve our problem, whether it's complicated math analytics, predicting the weather, or just typing out a document, a word processing program. Apollo literally invented the phrase software engineering. The software that flew the spaceships to the moon, that was in the computers, flying this, doing the math to the navigation to fly to the moon, that software was written in MIT. And the engineers at MIT who were writing it thought of it as an engineering discipline. And so they literally coined the phrase software engineering. And MIT brought a kind of engineering mindset to the software. You know, software projects around the world are famously, they, they run long, they produce software that's overcomplicated, it costs too much money. And then the question is, after all that, does it actually do what you asked it to do? And when you're going to the moon in 19, you're designing computers in 1965, 1966, 1967, the one thing they didn't have was a lot of computer memory. The computers were big for their time, but tiny compared to what we rely on now. So the software coding, the programming had to be creative and smart, but most important, it had to be clear. So computer programmers at MIT were clear on what they were trying to accomplish, what do we want this code to do? They documented what they had done. They wrote down, you know, here's what the code is. Here's what it's supposed to do. And then they tested it and made sure it did what it was supposed to do and refined it if it failed or didn't behave as expected. And when they refined it, they documented what they had done again. That's all routine when you're building a building, mm -hmm. when you're building a pipeline, when you're building sewers in a city, you draw, you get the design specs. This is what we want the building to do. This yeah. is the piece of land we're going to build it on. You draw blueprints. Here's the plan. Then when you start to build, you follow the blueprints. And if you have to adjust something, you change the blueprints and document what you've done, assuming everything is done according to the standards of modern engineering. No one in software was doing that in 1965, and NASA started out doing that. And again, that two things changed. First, software flew these spaceships to the moon. The astronauts on the way to the moon, going around the moon, coming home, they're traveling at five miles a second. No human being can make decisions fast enough to make the right decision fast enough to get there safely and come home. We just wouldn't have been able to do it. You needed computers, but it was the software that did that math, that did that navigation. The kind of software we take for granted in our phones now that maps us to you know wherever we want to go. If we want to drive home to mom, if we're going to a park or going to the store and don't know where we're going, it takes us there. That kind of computing was born during Apollo, but it was written by people. 
right? Computers don't magically program themselves. And so NASA helped create, again, the idea of a new discipline, mm -hmm. software engineering. They weren't by any means the only ones. And of course, software engineering was born in the New England states, in the Boston area in the United States, but migrated quickly to California. And obviously a lot of the culture and engineering practices around software came from that California culture. And it also showed people what you could do. I, I keep using the word computers flew to the moon, but in fact, it was the software. And so in fact, and I talked to a dozen of these people, many people who wrote software to fly to the moon for Apollo left MIT right at the end of the moon race and started their own software companies. I certainly found half a dozen software companies born out of the effort to go to the moon. The biggest one being a company called EMC in the United States, a huge data storage company that really became a behemoth, but lots of innovative software companies. So it created the idea that software was key and that it needed to be not handcrafted like beautiful furniture made by a craftsman, one table or a bookshelf at a time. It had to be an engineering discipline. It had to be reproducible. We mm. did this. You can do it too. Here's how. Mm. That's brilliant, really. And I think for our listeners, really, one interesting thing we see in startups when it comes to emerging markets is the thing you talked about, Charles, is a trust in software and trust in technology. So if you, for example, paid your kind of monthly bills physically by going in to the actual place, if a bunch of people actually come and say that you can now do it online via a payment system that you can pay bills online, I think there's an adoption gap in terms of people trusting that software and that tech. From our work, what we've seen is that a lot of time is basically spent by those startups in actually convincing the local population in, in developing countries that this is actually a trusted process of working. Right. You can actually pay right. your bills. So it's quite interesting to me that you're saying that the Apollo program was almost like a trust building exercise in computers and software. So yeah, that's just so fascinating. It's a perfect parallel. Those entrepreneurs are doing the same thing. They need to somehow create a culture and a sense of trust that these systems are not just reliable. You can trust them with your money and your bill payment, which exactly. is much different than they're reliable overall. It's about you personally. That's a very, very good comparison. Yeah. We talked about some of the kind of spin-off technologies that the US-based program gave us and that literally fundamentally changed the way we live today, right? So can you Tell us what are the kind of spin-off technologies that Apollo program and the following programs gave uh, and how it basically changed hardware and software. I mean, sure. Let's just talk about a couple of quick ones. The biggest one is computers themselves. When John Kennedy said to the world, let's go to the moon by 1969, in 1961, when he said that, the smallest computers were the size of four large refrigerators lined up together. Those four refrigerators were one computer. You couldn't send even one refrigerator to the moon. It was too big, way too much. By the time Apollo 11 landed on the moon and Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon, the computer that their spaceship had in it was the size of a small suitcase. Really, it was the size of a large briefcase. And that computer, that small computer, was 10,000 times faster than the computer that was the size of four refrigerators. That computer was, at that moment, the smallest and fastest and most nimble computer that had ever been created. Very importantly, it was the first computer to rely on computer chips. All previous computers had relied on a less advanced technology called transistors. Transistors mm -hmm. were really dependable, but they weren't fast. 
They didn't have the speed and they didn't have the density of computing power of computer chips. NASA drove the creation of the modern computer chip industry. People like Texas Instruments, which is still in business, and mm -hmm. Fairchild Semiconductor, which kind of gave birth to Intel. Those people said at the time, NASA taught us how to make really good, reliable computer chips that were flawless and that were inexpensive. The price of computer chips while NASA was doing this came down from $1,500 for a single computer chip. That's what NASA paid for the first one in 1961 to 75 cents per computer chip. That's what they cost 10 years later. And that's what we rely on. That's what all of our digital devices rely on computer chips. Would mm -hmm. that have happened anyway? Eventually. Sure. NASA didn't create the computer revolution that would not have otherwise happened. What they did was advance it by two years or four years or eight years. And they made it accessible to ordinary people. It mm -hmm. wasn't military technology. It was civilian technology. Another mm -hmm. big arena was battery. When the effort first started to go to the moon, people used disposable batteries and they weren't rechargeable. You just used the battery up and threw it away and they didn't last very long. And NASA went to a U.S company, a kind of well-known company in the U.S. called Black & Decker, a tool company. They made power tools, you know, power saws, power drills. And they said, we need tools we can use on the moon that don't have a cord running from the spaceship out the mm -hmm. hatch and across the moon. And we will pay you to develop battery technology. Now, anybody who carries a phone with them, anybody who carries a laptop computer with them relies on batteries that you don't even think about. Your phone works. Your computer works. Yeah, your computer needs to be recharged. Your phone needs to be recharged. But those batteries last for hours. They don't fade away and you can charge them over and over again. NASA going to the moon gave birth to that critical technology. Now, what's really important is no one said in 1961, if you go to the moon, you'll get a computer for every school kid in the world. If you go to the moon, you'll change battery. Those were problems that needed to be solved in order to get to the moon. And in the course of solving them, they turned out to be huge innovations that everybody back on earth could rely on. And so what I would say is lots, dozens of emerging market countries, including Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, the Arab nations as a coalition, Russia, Brazil, Bolivia, all kinds of countries have satellites in orbit because making a satellite has become something that's accessible to all kinds of organizations, Planet Labs, and all kinds of governments because it's inexpensive, it's reliable. Now, very few countries can launch those satellites. There's a big difference between what you're putting in orbit to do work for you, to do sensors or communications and just the transportation. Let anybody who wants to and is capable of it launch the rockets. I want to be the one with the satellites in orbit doing interesting work. That kind of innovation is accessible to almost any nation on earth and pulling people in from your country, getting your smart, motivated, creative people mm -hmm. to work on those kinds of space projects, that not only motivates them and teaches them all kinds of new engineering and science, it creates a halo in which other people want to do that and other businesses can turn around and take advantage of that. That's the opportunity. This is accessible financially to all, it's accessible to ordinary companies. If you can spend a million dollars on something, then you can get into the 
space economy. And that doing that then creates further opportunities. I really think the space economy is going to be a lot like the internet economy. It is going to touch everything. And your opportunities are only going to be limited by your willingness to say, I wonder if we could do that in space. And I wonder if that would change the game back on Earth. I think one of the things you also basically talk about in the book was that how this old image of people sitting and working on computers led to the digital revolution as well. So how Apollo helped the digital revolution. Can you speak more, a bit more about that? Sure. When people first started planning to go to the moon, computers were considered unreliable, but they also were incredibly expensive. They were they were, in fact, considered mostly a research tool at big universities like MIT and Harvard, mm. which in the U.S. did two of the first big computers, and they were used to solve military problems. How do we fire a projectile and get it to land where we want it to land? Then NASA spent 10 years using computers mm. for the hardest thing human beings had ever done, going to the moon, in full view of the world. And when you saw the people who were working on going to the moon, what were they doing? They were sitting at desks in front of computers. Well, you never saw anybody in 1965 or mm -hmm. 1967 or 1971 sitting in front of a computer, right? We see that all the time in TV and movies now and, and images, but it was completely uncommon then. And mm -hmm. the people sitting in front of those computers mm -hmm. in 1969 were also civilians. They were wearing business clothes. They were wearing, uh, famously, they were wearing white collared shirts with little pockets. And so that changed a lot of things. It changed people's perceptions of what you could do with a computer. It changed people's perceptions of who could use a computer. I didn't need to be wearing a lab coat and be an engineer. I could be somebody at work using a computer. And it changed the sense of their reliability. They weren't fussy pieces of equipment that had to be babied all the time. They were something that could do things in a split second and could be depended on to send people to the moon and bring them home safely. And so the way that changed the digital revolution was that in 1971 or 1973 or 1975, right around the time Microsoft and Apple, as an example, were being born, it was possible to say inside a company, we've got all this data. It would be mm -hmm. great to analyze it with a computer. It would change what we could understand and the speed with which we could understand it. The same thing with running a factory. You've got all these people running around, changing valves, moving things, trying to understand flows and performance. And if we had a computer, those people could do more productive work. They wouldn't need to tend the pipes and the assembly line. And a few people monitoring the computer could do that. The response would be, okay, that's interesting, rather than that's crazy. We can't afford the computer and we can't depend on the computer. So it completely changed the attitude about how we thought about computing and technology and what we could rely on it to do. You know, I don't know about the rest of the world. In the United mm. States, you can buy a, a birthday card or mm. a happy birthday card or a happy anniversary card. And when you open it, it sings happy birthday. It's got a little computer chip in it. You know, you spend six or seven dollars for it and it sings happy birthday. That's kind mm -hmm. of crazy, right? So this technology is everywhere in our lives. And it was born to get us to the moon. And so I think the most important thing for people to understand is it's worth setting some ambitious reach goals, not just because those goals might be worth reaching, but because the problems you solve along the way will help you solve all kinds of things that don't appear to be related. You can't predict what technology you're going to invent, what solutions you're going to create, and how that's going to help you. But what you can predict is if you tackle hard problems, it will help you solve all kinds of other things. And, and climate change is a perfect example of that. Even though we face the difficulties 
of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The 1960s, when Apollo was being worked on, was a crucially defining time in American history. There was a slew of things that almost happened together. Firstly, you had the civil rights movement, which was a struggle for social justice that took place between the 1950s and 60s for Black Americans to gain equal rights under the law in the United States. There was the sexual revolution as well, another social movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships and the increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships that existed throughout human history and last but not the least but you had obviously the Vietnam War which was a fight with communists in Vietnam and this was all going on while the Soviet space race was obviously going on as well with Russia so projects and innovation don't happen in isolation and that was the case for Apollo as well very much the 1960s that everybody sort of has in their imagination. In the United States, we had the women's revolution, the feminist revolution, the civil rights revolution, the sexual revolution, the music revolution. We had the effort to put in place better anti-poverty programs. We had the effort to launch what's called social security, a, a permanent pension program to eliminate poverty for old people in the United States. Then we had the Vietnam War and all of the protests and debate about what our role was, what the U.S. role was in the world, and whether the Vietnam War was something we should be fighting or shouldn't be fighting. So there was a political revolution and a participatory revolution in the streets as well. And the effort to go to the moon was itself a revolution, a revolution of technology, a revolution of the imagination. What could we reach for and accomplish? Those things were all part of the same sweep. You can't separate going to the moon from these other things. In fact, the day before that first moon launch, there was a huge protest, an anti-poverty and anti-racism protest at Cape Kennedy in the shadow of the Apollo 11 rocket, which was standing on its launch pad, ready to go the next day. And it was a kind of different era. And the then administrator of NASA, instead of issuing a statement on paper, came out and met the protesters. And he said something that was, I thought, really remarkable. He said, I absolutely understand and agree with the points you're making. No Americans should live without a toilet. No Americans should live in poverty. We need to do better on eliminating racism from our schools and our workplaces and our civic organizations. If we could not press the button labeled launch tomorrow, if we could not go to the moon and thereby solve those problems, there is no one in NASA who wouldn't skip the moon launch and solve the problems. But you're pitting two things against each other which are not rivals. In fact, he said, the lessons we've learned going to the moon can help us solve exactly the problems you're talking about right here on Earth. And I want to enlist you in understanding how to apply those lessons to exactly the things, exactly the goals 
you're, you're seeking, and I want to join you and commit NASA to helping you. That made such a dramatic impression on the protesters. The, the NASA administrator actually invited them to attend the launch, to sit in the viewing stands the next day. And many of them did, in fact, come to the launch. And they took them up. They said, okay, we would, we would like to work with you to the degree that NASA can help with these problems. And so all of the tumult of the 1960s had an impact on going to the moon. And I think going to the moon was one place where Americans could sort of stand back and say that no matter how much we disagree about about civil rights or about the Vietnam War or about the proper role of women. And there were there were people pulling in the in the wrong direction, to be blunt, on all those issues. We can agree that this kind of goal, going to the moon, is a truly American goal, this kind of effort, and the kind of thing we can all support. If you look at the polling data, if you ask them, they will say, whichever side they're on, yes, we are a country that does not necessarily agree on where we're headed or how to get there. And yet, just as in the 1960s, we can, I think we can come together to tackle big problems. And we clearly have at least as much talent, at least as much energy, at least as much capability in this country and around the world as we did 50 years ago. And so I think the big lesson from the 1960s and the race to the moon has got to be that political divisions do not need to prevent you from tackling and solving big problems. So you basically talked about some of the context, the Cape Kennedy protests and something related to the budget, really, a cost and how America couldn't afford it. I mean, at least that's what some people said, but actually you end up, you know, kind of did affording it. But in terms of today, yeah, so... Okay, hang yeah. on one second, hang on yes. one second. Let's talk for one minute about sure. affordability. The whole cost of going to the moon was $24 billion in mm -hmm. money that was spent at that time. Three years of fighting in the Vietnam War three mm -hmm. individual years, each cost more than $24 billion. So fighting the Vietnam War cost six or seven times what going to the moon cost. Going to the moon was a success. It created this incredible uh, universe of technology spinoffs mm -hmm. back on Earth. It was a success politically. People did admire what the United States had accomplished. The Vietnam War was a disaster in every single measure. It was a disaster in terms of the Americans who were killed and wounded. It was a much greater disaster in terms of the people in Vietnam who were killed and wounded. It was a political disaster. It was an absolute failure and it cost more money. So which could we afford? Could we afford to go to the moon or could we afford to fight the Vietnam War? So there's no world in mm -hmm. which the United States in the 1960s and 70s couldn't afford to go mm -hmm. to the moon. It's mm -hmm. a question of whether that was a good use of that money. That's mm -hmm. a different question, but the country could clearly afford it because they spent in individual years of a failing war more than a cost for the whole effort to go to the moon. Although the venture to space is great, one might say, what about the Earth that we live in today, the here and now? There are plenty of challenges on Earth today, including poverty and climate change. So this is something I covered with Charles on how we should think about positioning, deploying resources and time into space versus the oppressing priorities like climate change. Climate change is literally the most important challenge in front of all of us, no matter where we live. And I think we should be bending our imaginations and our resources and, frankly, our sense of urgency, if not our sense of panic, to tackling that problem. I think we can tackle it and we won't be sorry. I think, in fact, fixing climate change, solving the problems, the, the hundred problems of climate change will have 
the same thing as Apollo did, only across a much wider range. This incredible positive impact back on Earth. Will we be sorry if half of the power human beings use comes from wind and solar? Of course we won't be sorry. We just have to get there, right? There's not much downside to moving from coal-fired power plants to solar power. We just have to do it. We won't be sorry if we have renewable energy. We won't be sorry if we build more efficient vehicles, more efficient homes, more efficient office buildings. You're never sorry to do something better than you used to do it. But I don't think in this particular case, I don't think you can pit the resources against each other. Space, as an example, is a great way to understand climate change and to understand the impact of climate change in real time with a sense of speed and kind of authority. One thing we've begun to be able to do just in the last five years is measure greenhouse gas emissions from satellites in orbit. And those measurements aren't subject to people fudging the figures or lying Mm. about the figures or trying to hide something. You can actually measure the gases in the atmosphere and see what's happening, see what's changing. So to me, space is a tool for helping us understand and manage climate change. If it's a choice between solve this climate change problem or launch these three smiling people into space, sure, (laughs) solve the climate change problem. But, But I don't think in most instances, that's what the challenge is. In in the United States, we spend all kinds of money subsidizing fossil fuel producers. To me, that's a much more urgent priority. It's almost like a false dichotomy fallacy here, pitted against each other. So what you're saying is that space science actually reinforces and informs climate science in the long run. I think in this particular case, those two things Mm. absolutely inform each other. Mm. And the development of good space technology and our Mm. ability to do good work in space will help us solve climate change. Now, you have to want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that people use that satellite data for from Planet Mm -hmm. Labs, Planet Labs photographs the parking lot of every shopping mall in the United States every day. Mm -hmm. And so retailers and investors want to see what the parking lots look like in in advance of Christmas. Well, that's not using the data to solve climate change. That's a different kind of purpose. So yes, I think they absolutely reinforce each other, Mm -hmm. but you have to decide that that's a good use of that data, of course. While the U.S. and Soviet Union were battling for superiority in the space domain, Mao Zedong, one of the founders of the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, in 1957 said, China can't even put a potato in space. Well, since then, a lot has changed. While the U.S. and China are already battling for dominance in areas from semiconductor development to AI, space is supposedly now another battleground between the U.S. and China amid a broader technological rivalry for supremacy, one that could have scientific and military implications on Earth. The Chinese more than 6,000 patents relate to space travel, including vehicles and equipment, 90% of them in the last five years as we speak. So this is something I covered with Charles on how does he think if there is a re-emerging space race ongoing. Yes. There is a space race, but it's the space race in the 60s and 70s was literally two dimensional. It wasn't like a sports rivalry in terms of the stakes, in terms of the seriousness of it, but it was like a sports rivalry in that there were only two teams. And now it's not the same kind of rivalry, right? China in the last week has done a spacewalk from their space station. Mm -hmm. So they have a space station in orbit that they've put in orbit in the last year. 
It's got three Chinese astronauts on it. And last week, two of those three Chinese astronauts put on spacesuits, went outside, and did some construction work. They assembled equipment on the outside of the space station in space mm -hmm. to help the space station work and be effective. That was the second spacewalk in the history of China. There are 30 American astronauts who have personally done more spacewalks than all of the nation of China. Cool. So the, the U.S. has a hugely sophisticated and well-developed space program and culture of living and working in space. The International Space Station has been flying for 20 years. The Chinese Space Station has been flying for, I don't know for sure, but somewhere between six and nine months, okay? So there's not a race in the sense that the Chinese are in danger of catching the United States and passing them. There's a race across many, many dimensions. The Chinese space station may well have capabilities, may well be able to do things that the International Space Station can't simply because the International Space Station was built 20, you know, between 15 and 20 years ago, and the Chinese space station was launched in the last year. And so it takes advantage of all kinds of advances in material science computing power, as an example. The Chinese have landed probes on the moon. The Israelis, a small nation, tried to land a probe on the moon, failed. The Indians have sent really valuable satellites to the moon to try and understand water on the moon, as an example. And they've gone into orbit and done great research. And then you've got all these companies. You've got three big companies, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX, all trying to create the ability for private companies to act like airlines, to launch people into space in a routine way that's both affordable and safe. Jeff Bezos, who created Amazon and created Blue Origin, the rocket company, Jeff Bezos has said he expects by the middle of this decade, by 2025, that his launch company alone will have a regularly scheduled orbital launch for anybody who wants to put cargo or people on it. They'll go mm -hmm. up, whatever. Every Thursday at four o'clock, the Blue Origin rocket goes to orbit. Well, that seems kind of funny and fanciful, but also we can understand it. You know, that's how airplane flights work. Mm -hmm. That would be 52 flights a year for one company. There aren't even 100 flights to orbit for the whole world right now. Imagine mm -hmm. an era in which one company is doing 50. Well, he sees it and not that far away. So there's just a lot coming in this world. And is Blue Origin competing against China? Is SpaceX competing against NASA, right? There, there's a much more complicated competitive landscape, a much more complicated quote unquote race. The United States has said that it's going to send astronauts to the moon permanently to live and work as a way of trying to understand how to get to Mars. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, a private citizen with a private company, SpaceX, has said he's not going to the moon, he's going right to Mars. He's going to send people right <laughs> to Mars. But Elon Musk's biggest customer for spaceflight is NASA. So yeah. is he allied with NASA, a partner or a competitor? He's both. But that's the way the world of business, that's the way a, a rich, healthy economy works. It's really an ecosystem. And sometimes your competitors and sometimes your partners. And so I don't think anything can happen like the launch of of Sputnik or the launch of Yuri Gagarin in the 50s and 60s or the U.S. landing on the moon. I don't think there's going to be one moment that surprises everybody and mm -hmm. galvanizes this mad competition. You can't wake up one morning and say, we're landing somebody on Mars next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. It's too complicated. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a new space race 
but not to beat a dead horse. I think mm -hmm. it's in the framework of this emerging space economy. All kinds of people are going to be competing. And what that does is create opportunity for mm -hmm. all kinds of companies and organizations to mm -hmm. find a niche and provide really valuable services, either to the space economy itself or back on Earth. One of the things we love at Impasco is focusing on technological innovation in emerging markets, and space tech is absolutely no exception to that. So I covered with Charles on what can policymakers and statesmen in emerging market be thinking of doing when it comes to space. Specifically, are there any low-hanging, low-cost technology plays that they can be a part of and start deploying investment into? Here's what you had to say. It is absolutely the moment to start understanding what's going on and where as a policymaker in an emerging market country or an entrepreneur, where you can fit in and what's accessible. If the internet provides opportunities for you, if cell phones are used in all kinds of innovative ways, smartphones are used in all kinds of innovative ways. In some ways, space is a little like the so-called app economy, right? Yeah. Apple and Google have created app stores where you can create a small program that they offer for sale in their marketplace that does particular things and lands on people's phones and helps them solve their own problems. That's what space is a little bit like. And I look, I don't know how everybody goes about their business. What I would say to the entrepreneur is I would look at companies like Planet Labs. There's another company called Made in Space. What Made in Space is trying to do is create small manufacturing units that manufacture optical fiber, the kind of stuff we use to, to move data around the world, in space. If you make optical fiber in space, the glass is much purer than it is on Earth, and so light travels through it much more quickly, a thousand times faster than we move data now. And we move data pretty fast now with optical fiber. Made in Space wants to make robotic units that don't need to be tended by a human being, it can be launched into orbit, manufacture fiber, and then have the fiber return to Earth, basically parachuted back from orbit. And if they can make fiber that's a thousand times faster than what we've got, there will be huge demand for it. So I would look at the companies that are early now that are trying to do work in space and say, what are they doing? What niches are they exploiting? And what does that inspire in me? In terms of national economies, what I would say is, what are the advantages of communications and weather? and climate, sensory data that you can get. If you control your own destiny, what does that look like? What kinds of services could I offer, for instance, in my region? Can I be the center of weather data for my region in Central America or South America or some part of Asia? And what would it take to create a constellation of weather satellites that changed people's ability to understand what was going to happen in weather in real time and help farmers, governments, city planners, companies be ready for the weather that was coming. If I wanted to do that as a country, just taking weather as a single example, how many satellites would I need? What kind of capabilities would they need? 20 years ago, that required the best minds of the United States of America or the Soviet Union. Today, I remind you, Planet Labs photographs the whole planet every single day, a tiny little company. So yeah. if you're a national government and you want to do something innovative, what's missing from what we have available to us? What could we get in more detail? Weather's a perfect example. Climate's a perfect example. And could we not just offer that as a service, could we somehow use that as a business tool? Could we not only offer it, but make money from offering it? So I think there are huge 
opportunities out there. And the key is open your mind to what kind of educated workforce do we have? What kind of engineering and science talent do we have? How could we focus that? What, what could we offer? And then exactly the opposite of opening wide. Zero in and say, as an example, we're going to create four weather satellites that are going to change what people in Central and South America know about their weather, and we're going to be the experts. We're going to design the satellites, launch them, operate them, offer the information, and also turn it into a business. So I think this is the moment because the world has changed in the last five years, and most people don't realize it. Don't wait for the space economy to become something you read about every day online in the online news sources and hear about on the business channels. Understand that the space economy is arriving right now and figure out how to take advantage. And I don't think you need 10,000 people. I think a few dozen people with the right resources can see some opportunities and build on those opportunities. Yeah. And for me, the biggest opportunity is, as you said, because the costs are going down and the space is almost like a platform tech on top of it, like a data economy as well with Planet Labs and stuff like that. So so I think I was already seeing an example of this, some company in Kenya that helps gather agricultural data from space and how that they're using that basically to help with droughts, farmers and irrigation and patterns. So that's an application right there, right? So I'm sure if you delve deep into it, you can solve some of the local challenges using... No, that's that's right. Yeah. That's exactly the point. Yeah. Don't be in Kenya or, or Indonesia or Bangladesh trying to solve the problems of some country a half a world away. Yeah. Look around at the, look around at, would you be able to manage flooding better if you had better flooding data? Exactly. Would you be able to manage production of food better if you had better agricultural data from space? What would it take? Can we do that? Can we partner? Can we develop that expertise ourselves? And don't forget to keep, you know, what was the original mission in mind? We want to help farmers. <laughs> yeah. So let's make sure we sort of stay focused on where we're going. Sure, sure, sure. I think the other big takeaway from this whole American space program that I've taken, at least, is that having big, bold goals, like you said, and in the pursuit of achieving those goals, there's like second and third tier effects, like spinoff tech that came about. So like there's a bunch of other benefits that come about as a result of you achieving these big, bold goals. So that was quite fascinating to me, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one one of the most important things. Stay focused on solving the agricultural problem in front of you in Kenya, but pay attention to what other things you might be able to tackle with the same kind of ability, with the same kind of technology. And what you'll discover is if you tackle something ambitious and demanding, it will actually offer solutions to all kinds of other problems. You know, communication satellites became weather satellites. Weather satellites became climate satellites. Right. Climate satellites became a solution to all kinds of demanding problems on Earth. So it's the spinoffs. You can't predict what they're going to be, but you it is worth being alert to what they are. Sure. Absolutely. Sounds good. So last question for you, Charles, and you can put in your parting thoughts, anything you want to tell our listeners as well. But my last very loaded question is without the Apollo space programs, where do you think human civilization would be today? You know, there were so many moments when we almost didn't make it to the moon and the political support for 
for going to the moon was starting to fade. And then President Kennedy was assassinated. And his successor, the man who took over from him, was Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson. And President Johnson made going to the moon a tribute to the slain American president to the martyred American president. And mm-hmm. so he gave it a, a political insulation. But there were lots of moments. And then there was this huge fire, the Apollo 1 fire that killed three astronauts. That was years after President Kennedy was assassinated, three years after President Kennedy was assassinated. And at that moment, there were lots of people in Congress who said, it's too dangerous. It's too expensive. We just killed three people. Let's not do this anymore. We don't need mm-hmm. to do it. We got lots Mm -hmm. of problems on it. So there were moments when it almost didn't happen. Of course, it's impossible to know how the world would look different if we hadn't gone to the moon. But what I think we can say is, first of all, going to the moon, the most important thing that going to the moon was, it changed our own perceptions of what we as people could accomplish. It was such a wild, outrageous goal. We can all look at the moon today, every single night and say, my gosh, we've been there. We have visited there. Isn't that incredible? Certainly in the United States, it created a sense of possibility. If you can put people on the moon, why can't you fill in the blank, solve this problem? If we can go to the moon, why can't we X? That's actually an expression in American English. People use it all the time. I wrote part of the whole chapter of how often people say, if we can go to the moon, why can't we do this? And then it did create all of this technology. I'm not here to tell you that your smartphone, that your iPhone wouldn't exist, that your laptop computer wouldn't exist, that your cordless drill wouldn't exist if we hadn't gone to the moon. But I can tell you that going to the moon helped make those possible. And so they made them possible much sooner. And imagine if all of this technology were reserved to government. Imagine if it were applied to only to military uses, for example, or if most of it were applied to military uses. That could have happened. It didn't. It's available to everyone. Does the militaries around the world take advantage of it? You bet. But in fact, it's in the hands of ordinary civilians. That's what's so marvelous is that high school students can sit in their bedrooms anywhere in the world with a laptop computer and have an idea and make it happen. That's kind of incredible. There's a wonderful democratization of innovation, creativity, accessibility that technology makes possible as long as you live in a place where that technology is accessible. So we don't know what would have happened if we hadn't gone to the moon. But what I can tell you is the technology is sort of in and of the civilian world, the non-military world. It's used in all kinds of ways that we couldn't have even imagined because of that creativity. And it's accessible to anybody from age 11 to age 81 or 91 to use and sort of create. And so that's exactly what we would have wanted. There's all kinds of downsides. You can do you can mm. do three podcast episodes on the ways in which technology is mm. used by authoritarian regimes in ways that are bad, is, you know, Facebook in the United States and the American elections, all kinds of misinformation. There's a whole realm of bad news. But that's a question of managing the tools correctly, not a question of the nature of the tools themselves. And so what I would say, it unleashed this remarkable technological revolution, and it did it in a way that was appealing and accessible and and helped drive the creativity that we want in that kind of powerful technology and also the accessibility. Awesome. Brilliant. And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Charles Fishman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great interview, a great set of provocative and thought-provoking questions. 
If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the Innovation Civilization podcast on your podcasting platform of choice. We're available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts as well. If you love the episode and would love to share the learnings, please feel free to share with your family, with your friends, and with your colleagues as well.